Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast version from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and the most leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfheim, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, you better grab it. I will grab it. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you're listening or watching, as always, I thank you very much for your continued support, and you're going to be handsomely rewarded once again, because, you know, I got to say, the term legendary gets thrown around kind of loosely sometimes, but my guest today is indisputably of that stature. I'm speaking of none other than the superlative trombonist, band leader, arranger, and composer, Fred Wesley, best known for his landmark work with James Brown and his band, the JBs, and with George Clinton, including Parliament, Bootsy's Rubber Band, the Horny Horns, and other P-Funk acts and offshoots. Subsequent to that, Fred has gone on to record and perform in the jazz idiom, as well as funk it up under his own name with the JB Horns featuring longtime sax playing greats, Maceo Parker and Alfred P. Lee Ellis. As if that's not enough. Among the classic and unforgettable tracks Fred has imprinted with his indelible one-of-a-kind bone tone are Say It Loud and Black um, and I'm Proud, Mother Popcorn, Hot Pants, Doing It to Death, More Peas, Give Me Some More, Same Beat, Damn Right Am Somebody, Escapism, Licking Stick, the payback and make it funky. And that's just a sampling of his James Brown related work from 1968 to 75. His amazing work with P-Funk from 1975 to 1983 included all their great songs on the seminal Parliament albums, Mothership Connection, The Clones of Dr. Funkenstein, Funk and Teleki versus the Placebo Syndrome and the Motor Booty Affair. Also with Bootsy's Rubber Band, Stretching Out, All the Names Bootsy Baby, Bootsy Player of the Year, and so much more. In addition to those amazing achievements, Fred has also recorded with the likes of George Benson, Bobby Walmack, Bill Laswell, Soul Live, Marcus Miller, Hank Crawford, Idris Muhammad, and Esther Phillips, among so many others. All told, he has appeared on more than 150 albums. With a body of work that positions him as one of the principal architects and builders of the funk music genre, and in my purview, one of popular music's tastiest and most soulful horn players, Fred penned his, his engrossing 2002 autobiography, Hit Me Fred, Recollections of a Sideman, and it's highly recommended if you haven't read it yet. Since then, Fred has continued to record and perform, as well as work with music students. In 2015, the Mobile Native was inducted into the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame. Like all true innovators, his passion remains undiminished as he presently plays with multiple groups and keeps pushing the proverbial envelope by touring the world and experimenting with new sounds. I gotta say, pinch me because I must be dreaming to be here with the one and only Mr. Fred Wesley. How you doing? All right. I'm doing great. I'm just an ordinary guy who happened to fall into funk. He's humble too. <laughs> <laughs> I understand you're coming to us from uh, South Carolina today. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm near you. Yeah, we got the Carolinas connection going here. That's it. Yeah. I'm feeling it. Feeling the love. All right. So you're ready to hit me by uh, answering some questions today? Okay, let's do it. 
I was going through to get ready for this. I was going through some of my vast music collection, and I, you know, in doing so, it seems almost like half of my CDs and albums have you on there somewhere. So see there. <laughs> <laughs> so Fred, let's talk about you know, uh, in Alabama, what it was like for you as a youth and how you got into music. I know you came from a, a bit of a musical family. So if you could take us through that and how you got to, you know, your first sort of professional level of musicianship. Well, my, my father saw me as a, as a rebel because he was a, a piano player, sort of a jazz piano player with more of a entertaining sort of a, 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 a Buddy Johnson, a Count Basie type of piano player, had a big band. And so, but I, I wanted to play in his band. I played in his band. He let me play in his band. That's how I played trombone. He happened to need a trombone in his band. So he told me if I learned how to play the trombone, I could be in his band. So I learned how to play the trombone. It was just a temporary thing, I thought, you know. But uh, I got calls from people all over town to play the trombone and to play the bass and to play the, uh, the drums and the keyboards with every band that I could think of that in Mobile, Alabama. So I, I became a professional. I was about 17 years old, and uh, Ike Turner came to town, and uh, he needed a baritone saxophone player. Uh, I couldn't play baritone sax, but I told him I could play trombone. So I played trombone in place of a baritone saxophone with Ike and Tina Turner. That's when Tina Turner was really Ike and Tina Turner, you know? But uh, uh, that's how I became a professional. When, when I went on the road with Ike and Tina Turner. I was, a uh, uh, freshman in high school, I mean in a uh, college, and uh, I got I quit college to go on the road, but I continued turn. Wow! So what year about was that? Uh, about nineteen sixty-two, somewhere around in that, you know. Wow! And yeah. how old were you uh, about when you first picked up the trombone? Oh, maybe twelve years old. I was just uh, about twelve, and uh, I, I was I was studying uh, trumpet and saxophone you know i wanted to be a trumpet player like lee morgan or somebody like that you know clifford brown was a bad trumpet player but uh my father told me that i could play in his band if i learned how to play the trombone so i played the trombone you know and I, i've always tried to play the trombone to sound like a trumpet or a saxophone but uh um i think i that's how i developed my own type of sound you know because i, I i'm trying to sound like lee morgan uh, uh, Clifford Brown, somebody like that, you know? I think a lot of great uh, musical innovations seem to come from trying to make an instrument, you know, fill in for something else or sound like something else. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But that's how you get the original sound, you know, because if you play, if I had to play just like J.J. Johnson, who's an idol of mine, uh, I would be just known as a good trombone player if I could, could have ever reached the proficiency that J.J. was at, you know? But I played the trouble on trying to make it sound like Lee Morgan, so it got a twist there. And so I sound like Fred Wesley, you know? So did you have any formal training, or you just kind of played by ear, or what? I had formal training in the beginning on trumpet and saxophone. But uh, I had a little training with uh, E.B. Coleman, who was my teacher in, uh, in Mobile my high school teacher and my, my band, uh, John Irons, who was my band teacher in high school. But uh, I never really had any formal training until I got in the Army, and I had about two months of intense 
form of training from a trombone player named uh, Joe Phillips, who was in, uh, in, the, in the Navy, in the Army, in the, uh, in the Navy at the music school, the military school of music in uh, Little Creek, Virginia. So I got a little formal training from him. Oh, so um, did you get deployed anywhere? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was in the Army band and, and when I was in the Navy. Uh, okay. This is about 64. 64, I think it was. And I, instead of going into the uh, infantry, uh, the, the uh, 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 airborne, they put me in the band. I was glad because uh, I could play. I could uh, further my musical experience in the band in the army, and uh, it was a great experience too. Because I played, I, I had my formal training. Then I went to a band that played mostly jazz, you know. So uh, that, that's how I got my big band training. Uh, that's how I was able to play with Count Basie and other big bands around Los Angeles, you know, because I had army training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We may be uh, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I'm thinking, you know, that army training, that regimentation and all that, and that preciseness probably was pretty good, you know, schooling to get ready for, you know, James Brown. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what transpired between, uh, you know, your service and uh, getting with James Brown? Who else did you play with and, and how did you connect with James Brown? I was in the army. And I had my own band. I had a band called The Master Sound. Um, uh, 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 Walter Orange, uh, Clyde of the Commodores, he played with my band. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, um, when that band broke up, and that's when I went back to Mobile, and uh, I just happened to get a call from Pee Wee Ellis and asking me about playing with James Brown. Now, I didn't want to play with James Brown. You know, I wanted to play with some... Uh, some jazz artists like uh like Horace Silver of uh, uh the jazz messages, you know, I Blakey, so, something like that, you know. I was still practicing on the trombone. I had gotten pretty good on trombone. I thought I was was uh, I thought I was the stuff on uh on trombone, you know. So uh, I went back to Mobile and I was continued to gig around and Pee Wee Ellis called me, asked me if I wanted to be with James Brown and so I thought about it and then I I took the job because I thought it was a way to get out of Alabama and I uh, get to New York or to Los Angeles somewhere and be heard and uh, be uh, picked up as a, as a great jazz trombonist. You know, I just look at Jane Brown gig as a temporary gig also. Mm -hmm. So then this is like around 68, is that right? When you first? Yeah. Okay. So. Did, did you audition for James or, you know, how did you ultimately become part of his, his, uh, band? Well, I was recommended by, by, um, Pee Wee Ellis and Wayman Reed and who had heard me play before, you know, and a Bernard Odom and, uh, John Stark's Jabbo who was in the band already. So they bounced from me, but James told me I would have to stay on the side of the stage and listen at the band and see if I liked it and see if they liked me, you know, and uh, so that, that that's how I got into the band. I was uh, I was on the band for maybe a month, listening, just listening to that stuff, you know. And um, I was really impressed with the band. I was glad I was in James Brown band after a while because it was a hot band. It was real tight. They played a little jazz, you know. And uh, uh, I, I was uh, I was really glad to be in that band. 
When you first got into it, Fred, uh, what was like James's biggest hit at that point? Was it Cold Sweat? Was it after that? Where, where was it? Cold Sweat. Yeah. You know, I, uh, we had we had uh, tried to play Cold Sweat. I didn't like it. I did not like Cold Sweat. I, I, I mean, I, I hate to tell people this because they think I'm crazy, you know. But I, 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 I say Cold Sweat is all wrong, you know. It's, it's all jumbled up with that bridge. <laughs> you can't do music like that, you know. So um i did finally get the light cold sweat when i was in the band i was in with the band with james brown band i met Wee ellis who had been instrumental in writing cold sweat and uh you know i, I really liked him so i listened to cold sweat again and he explained some things to me and i got to like it after a while you know cold sweat was the the hit at that time i met maceo you know maceo played the tenor saxophone solo so I was, I was glad to be a part, a part of that, you know. Well, what an amazing, now, you know, just legendary lineup. Um, so, did you, you know, did, did you have any uh, um, nervousness, you know, playing in front of a crowd or playing in an audience or and moving to the front? Did you really relish being a side person did you want more limelight oh i was i was definitely a side man you know i feel to down to this day i feel most comfortable on the side of the stage playing my part you know but uh uh yes i, I was i was really uh a side man you know because I, I met all the cats and i met maceo maceo was an out front guy you know and he was he was a real gregarious type of entertaining type of person you know and i like maceo you know i i, I mean I really like Maceo. He, he's one of my best friends. Till this day, he is, you know. But uh, 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 and Pee Wee Ellis, you know, I, I saw him as a mentor. He told me what to do and what not to do, and he would write things down for me, you know. And, and I was impressed. I was really impressed with this band, you know. So, uh, uh, but I was most comfortable on the side of the stage, playing my part to the best that I that I could, you know. So what was the first record that you recorded in studio with that band? Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. That was the first one I did, you know. Uh, uh, we was in California having fun, you know. And uh, they came to the, to the hotel and said, uh, Jane, what's everybody in the studio? Everybody in the studio. So that, that means we had to stop what you were doing, get in the car and go to a studio way out in the valley somewhere. I don't know where it was, but uh we did say it loud i'm black and i'm proud yeah wow did you have a sense at the time that hey this sounds like a hit i didn't know what it was you know it was a it was a tune that we had been putting together on stage you know every day on the stage they would uh we would have rehearsal and uh uh everybody would blow a, a certain part you know Pee Wee would give it to him james would come in and add his part to it so we, we had this tune down but it didn't have a title it didn't have a a, a lyric or anything you know just da, 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 da. we just knew that as the riff you know so uh when we went to the to the uh studio i found out we were playing this tune and uh we played it and james said say it loud but you kids say i'm black and i'm proud so that that's the way it happened you know and I mean that record was so uh, influential too, just for you know the Black Pride movement and all that. So did did that strike you as well that you were making a, a difference, you know, in terms of society with a, a song like that? 
I was completely oblivious, you know, because <laughs> I, I didn't know what was happening. You know, I, I do know that uh, uh, we, we recorded it too. And when we got to Houston, uh, from California, we played Phoenix and same cities in between Los Angeles and Houston, Texas. About two weeks, James went on stage and said, say it loud, and everybody said, I'm black and I'm proud. And I couldn't believe it. I said, how could a, a record get recorded out, everybody here, all over the world, all the way to Houston, Texas, and they uh, responded to it. Like, no, I had never heard any, anything like that. Uh, James Brown was the master of getting the record out and around the world uh, as soon as possible. He was a master at doing that. You know, I don't know how he did it. Still don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, when we got to Houston, everybody was black and proud, you know? Wow. That make uh, give you some goosebumps when you're up there and experiencing something like that? Oh, it was more than goosebumps. You know, I was taken aback. Uh, I was I was really surprised, and I must have looked surprised, you know, because uh, uh, it was a, a, a tremendous feeling to, to me. And everybody else, you know, I think they, they, they were uh, amazed as I was, you know, that it could happen like that, you know. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, so you were being shown the ropes by, you know, guys like you mentioned, like Pee Wee and so forth. But at some point, you kind of moved more forward in terms of being more of a band director, a musical director and that kind of thing. So how did that evolve? Well, you know, over the over the time, I finally got in the band, and uh, I was like Pee Wee's assistant. You know, I used to copy music for him and uh, uh, drive him from place to place. Uh, I, I was just his assistant for a long time. So when he left the band, and uh, uh, he left the band rather uh, dubiously, you know, they told they told uh, told uh, now James knew how. James knew what I had been doing. He knew I was assistant to Pee Wee, so he just assigned me. I was the band leader until he could find a real band leader. So uh, I was uh, leading the band, and uh, um, that, that's how it happened. Pee Wee left, and I just slid into his position. You know. Well, what year was that? Would you say? Maybe '69, late '68, something like that. You know. So the band was constantly recording or performing. I mean, it must have seemed kind of like a blur. Did you ever have any downtime? Not really. Uh, I, I'm writing a book now about about the uh, in between time. Now you know that's my next book. Um, uh, it would just play, rehearse, play, rehearse, record. Uh, it was a, like a whirlwind thing, you know. Uh, uh, Sometimes we record one record, you find you hear it on the radio, and uh, we're recording something else and something else. And uh, it, some things it'll play on it'll play on the radio, some things wouldn't, you know. But uh, it was constantly record, gig, uh, uh, ride the bus, write music, and just 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 totally. Uh, uh, it was chaos, chaotic, but it was organized chaos. Chaos, you know, like George Clinton said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was it like working with James, you know, both in studio and on stage? 
Well, you know, uh, first he was the boss. That was undisputable. He was the boss. So uh, it was uh, in, in the studio. You just play what he told you to play, you know. Uh, no matter how ridiculous it sounds at the time, you know, because uh, he, would, he would tell me to play a note and I, I find out, find me a note. I, I just keep on until uh, he said, that's it, you know. And uh, so whatever I did would be, that's it. That's, that's the way he, uh, 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 with everybody, he did that with everybody. You know, everybody would play what he said until they, they found something and he would say, that's it. And so that would be it, you know. So tunes were put together like that. James would say what to play and uh, Pee Wee would either translate it to us uh, he would go directly to the guys in the band. He would go directly with the drummer and the bass player and the guitar player. But the horns, Pee Wee would say, "Well, play this note, play this note, and uh, you know, uh, voice the horn, so to speak." And uh, that, that's the way tunes came together. Did you know it's notorious for you know running a tight ship and being the boss and all that and the fines and everything? Did you kind of manage to steer clear of that for the most part? Or did you ever get in a little hot water with the boss? No, I never did anything wrong. You know, they, they would, uh, he would say fines and stuff. I would see people get fined, but I usually agreed with them. You know, they come late, uh, be out of uniform or whatever, and you get a fine for something like that. You know, I could understand. I could understand. And uh, everybody else understood, too, that they were going to be a fine if you do something. That was against the, the prevailing rules at that time, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was okay. Uh, uh, as long as you didn't directly uh, challenge James, he was cool with you. Just say, yes, sir, Mr. Brown, and do what he said. And uh, as long as you, you did that, everything was all right. Once you, you crossed him, though, then you had, you had a problem, you know, because he would not lose an argument or fight. He would not lose, you know. When spending all those years with him, Fred, do you feel like you got to know James Brown, the man, at all, or did he always kind of have a bit of a wall up? And and if you did, what what do you think of James Brown, the man? You know, uh, I, I I don't know if if I got I got to understand James. I understood what he where he was coming from and why he was coming from where he was coming from. So. I understood how to work with him, you know, and I'm not sure, but I think he kind of liked me too, because he understood where I was coming from and, and he understood that I would do whatever he said. You know, we had one riff. He thought that I had done the horns on uh, 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 George Clinton's Chocolate City album. And I told him I didn't do it. I didn't even know George, you know. And I, I, I hadn't even recorded. I had never heard Chocolate City. Until then, I wouldn't listen to it. You know, that's not me, you know. So um, he always thought that I lied to him about that. I, I never lied to him. I always told him the truth, whether it was to protect myself or protect him. I told him the truth all the time, you know. But uh, uh, he just was sure that I had done the horns on um, uh, Chocolate City. You, you give them cats our stuff. I said, I didn't do it, Mr. Brown. I didn't do it. And uh, but years later, he finally found out I, I really didn't do it. And uh, but uh, that, that, that's the only thing because I understood how to work with him, what pushed his buttons, 
what didn't push the button, what made him happy, you know, what didn't make him happy. I understood all of that for the most part. You know, sometimes I would make a mistake. But uh, uh, that's how we got along together. And uh, we, we got real close. I think maybe he might have really liked me, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he did or not. It seemed like he would, he would do whatever he could to keep me from uh, having fun, you know. He wanted me to work, work, work all the time the way he did. He wanted me to work as hard as he worked. And I, I made him think that I was working as hard as, as he was, too, you know, which I wasn't, you know. I, was just, <laughs> I did work hard, though. I did work because I had to be on call, whether he called me uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, 8 o'clock at night. I had to be there for him. Come, Fred, I would always go, you know. So it was a, it was, it was a strange kind of a hard relationship for me. But I think he understood me as well as I understood him. Do you remember the first time when he called you out in a song, you know, on record? When, when did he first say, you know, hit me Fred or hit Fred? Fred. I mean, yeah. When did that first happen? I don't know if he, uh, I think, doing it to death was the first one. I think so. Um, uh, he, he would say, do you remember, uh, what was that? Uh, I can't think of the name of the tune right now, but he might have called me out on that. I, I know that was the first solo I played with him, and uh, he just pointed to me to play. You know, I don't know if he said, hey, Fred, or hit me, Fred, or anything. Uh, people get up and drive your fucking so No. That's where the horn part went. Yeah. I can't think of the name of the tune, but. Uh, I, I, I believe that was the first time he uh, he said Fred or something like that. Maybe not. Maybe he didn't do it. It was years ago, you know, 50 did, years, I can't remember. Did did he do it on stage first, or you think in the studio first? In the studio first. The studio. Everything happened in the studio, then we were transferred to the stage. So how did you feel about that? Were you were you glad to be called out like that? Did you, did you have fun with it? It was all right, you know. Um, um, uh, I, I think maybe James found out I could do that, you know, so he had me to play against Maceo, you know, because Maceo was hot shit at that time, you know, he was he was the man, you know. And, and I, you know, I don't think James liked people being the man off of something that he did, you know. So he liked to have a man over here and a man over there. Maybe that's why he had two drummers, you know. Drummer here, then he said, oh, you ain't doing it, this drummer do it, you know. And, so I think he had two soloists at the same time, you know, me and Maceo. But um, uh, I don't know why he did it, but I'm, I'm glad he did it now because I'm a famous trombone player now. But at the time, look here, Pastor P, I said, I hope my, my people in Melbourne don't hear me on here this solo. This is the terrible solo I ever played, you know. And uh, because I, I was just, 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 uh, uh, I was just shy about how simple the songs were and how they would sound to to me, even to me back in Mobile when I, where I first started. You know, I said, I would laugh at this song. That's crazy, you know. Give me some more. 
that's really ridiculous. You know, I hope nobody in my hometown hears this, you know, because they'll laugh me out of town, you know. But uh, now I hear it and it sounds perfectly normal, you know. This sounds kind of ancient too, you know. But uh, uh, I had to be forced into that, you know. I was forced into Well, you know, James would say, hit me, friend. I would just go on and play by say, I hope this don't be no hit, you know. <laughs> you know. And they, they were so influential too, those songs, you know, with, you know, groups like Average White Band, Pick Up the Pieces and BT Express, uh, Express and all these songs that were coming out that kind of replicated what you did with the JBs. Did you find that flattering or did you say, hey, these guys are knocking us off? No, no, I, I found it flattering that somebody else actually liked these tunes, you know, and liked them to the point where they put it on, on, on their records, you know, so I was amazed, but I was I was more flattered than anything else. Now, were you still with James? I think, weren't there some times before you ultimately left uh, because of Chocolate City um, that you maybe were away for a bit and then came back? Or am I wrong? Oh, yeah. Um, whole, whole 1970, I was gone. I, I was, uh, I, <coughs> all of 1970, I was, uh, I was in Los Angeles. I moved my family to Los Angeles. And um, I, I figured at that time, it was uh, good for me because I had met a guy in a, Lost that name, Preston Love. He was the contractor for the horns and for the whole bands for the Motown reviews and stuff like that. He say, if you move out here, I have you working all the time, you know. So uh, I took that as a as a as a cue, you know. Me and James got into it over singing a simple song. He he wanted to do the rhythm first. I wanted to do the horns first, you know. And so uh, I, I quit. And I moved to California, and I, I, I thought I was going to be working at all time. But Preston Love, at that time, he moved back to Omaha. And I was just out in L.A. I was I, I met a few people, but uh, I, I didn't have a, a direct uh, direct way to go to the studio, you know, to, to make some money. So I just did some odd things, like uh, uh, I played with a band called Sam and the Good Timers, you know, and uh, uh, we we did all right, but we didn't make big money like I went to California to make, you know. So after uh, a year, I came back to James. So like seventy one. So you you missed when uh, yeah. Bootsy and, and Catfish were were there, right? Yeah, yeah. But that you know that's when uh, uh, James probably cut his best hits, you know, like uh, Sex Machine. That was a monster. It was a, it was a big hit. I, I think that that's the biggest single hit James ever had. Sex machine, and then right right behind that, super bad, amazing, you know, because you had uh, Bootsy and Jabo. They, uh, they they developed a thing, you know. Uh, 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 soul power too, right? Soul power. That soul power was what after I came back. I came back with soul power. You know that it was no horns on uh sex machines, no horns on super bad, but uh soul power had horns in it, you know. Uh, because I was back then. But uh Bushy, Catfish, Jabo, uh uh that combination was a, a, a super bad combination. 
So you came back, and it was around that time when actually, or shortly after that, I mean, this happens to be probably my favorite JB album. Oh, okay. You know, The Big Payback is such an awesome track. Do you remember uh, working on this one in particular? Oh, yeah. I was was firmly ensconced in the band. It was like what James said. What I said, that that was the, the way everything went. I was the second in command, you know. So uh, uh, we cut, I remember cut, uh, is Mind Power on that? Yeah. Mind Power. I said, this ain't going to work. It's too long, you know. And it just, uh, But I did what James said, you know. That, that's why, that was the key to my success. I always did what he said or made him think I was doing what he said, you know, because uh, that's why he always trusted me. He trusted me to go in the studio with these bands and to, to uh, direct his band when uh, when he wasn't there, you know. He trusted me. He knew I was going to always do, if not the right thing, I was going to do his thing, you know. I wasn't going to worry about being my thing. I was going to do his thing. A lot of it turned out to be my thing, though, but it still was a, a opportunity for me to, to elevate myself as a trombone player, as an arranger, and uh, as a composer too, you know. And he really branched out then too with uh, Lynn Collins and uh, oh yeah, a lot of the other acts, the JB uh, albums, and I mean it was becoming a, a huge, a huge thing, an empire, if you will, in the early seventies. It really was. Uh, uh, Palador Records gave us carte blanche, anything we wanted, anything we would write in, write a contract for, boom, money flowed out of there. That's that crazy, you know. So uh, it was a good time. But all of a sudden, somebody came in and said, we want to see what albums you're doing, on which artists, and and uh, uh, got to have a contract, blah, blah, this and that. So everything was going to be more more tight-fisted now from Polydor, you know. I think it, that, that's when they changed the Polygram. I don't know. But uh, so the money stopped flowing. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, one time, you know, David always said same thing that made me mad, but I would just suck it up and go on, you know. But we were in Madison Square Garden. James said something that, that made me mad. And uh, I quit. I just quit just like that. I told him, I said, uh, uh, I said, is that the way you see it? I don't see it like that. And I quit. And I did. I, I left the band at that time. So, and that was, uh, what year was that? 65, I think. Early 65. I mean, 75. 75. Okay. So that was when you left for good, pretty much, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> did you... <laughs> <clears throat> did you already have sort of in mind what your next move would be? Had you already met, you know, George Clinton or talked to Bootsy or what was, you know, yeah, brewing? I hadn't met George, but, uh, you know, me and Bootsy had, had got to be friends uh, his, his last couple of months um, with James Brown. I was there, you know, and uh, we, we got to communicate and, and uh, talk about music and talk about other things. You know, we, we were good friends already, you know. And he had told me, say, if I get something going, if I leave here and get something going, I'm going to come, come back and get you and Maceo, you know. So uh, we knew that was there because they had got a big hit. Chocolate City had come out. And uh, uh, Boosie told me, say, uh, say Fred, I'm going I'm to I'm come get you. 
And uh, he did one night. One night, one night, they all came to to the hotel I was staying in and uh, played me that. Bah, bah, Play that. I had never heard no funk like that, you know. That was some amazing music. I said, yeah, 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 I want some of this, you know. And uh, sure enough, when I quit James, uh, I went over there and told him, I said, I'm here, you know. I met George Clinton. They offered me a job. I said, I'll do whatever, you know. And uh, bam, bam, it happened, you know. I was glad to be away from James to a more... A uh, free atmosphere with uh, George Clinton. George Clinton told me to do do whatever you want to do. If I, if I like it, I use it. If I don't like it, I won't use it. You know, that, that was a simple uh, uh, way to do things. You know, so I just did the baddest shit I could think of. You know, and uh, uh, it worked out. So, how did you come together with uh, Rick Gardner and uh, who was the fourth? Maceo. Um... Well, Macy, yeah, and then one more. Kush. Kush, uh, yeah. So yeah, how did you yeah. come uh, together as the four? Well, it was just, just a thing, you know. Um, um, well, me and Macy are always going to be tight, you know. And um, so Kush um, uh, 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 came. You know, first the first album was recorded with some other trumpet players, um, Marcus Belgrade. Famous trumpet player that had played with uh, Ray Charles and uh, Maurice Davis, a studio trumpet player that uh, uh, I think it named Maurice Davis around Detroit. So the, both most of these guys we got from Detroit, you know, and so uh, uh, we did Boosted album and I think some of the Parliament album, the Parliament something album. Anyway, this one, um, yeah, yeah, part of that one, yeah, yeah, and uh, that was uh. Uh, Marcus Belgrave and uh, uh, Maurice Davis. And so, uh, I don't know how we got Kush and Rick, but we, we did have somebody said we knew a guy in California who could play high notes and he's a great trumpet player and he's looking for a gig, you know. So we went out there and we got Rick. So he, he, he came and he was enthusiastic about it, you know. And I don't know why Kush came. Kush was our boy. We knew him from Jan Brown Band, you know. And uh, I don't know if he had quit already or he was getting ready to quit. Anyway, Kush uh, came on the band. We, we got the horny horn thing going, and it was amazing, you know, the, the, way, the way I did and Maceo and the two trumpets. It was a, a really an amazing horn section. Yeah, so, and I have... You know, got a lot of records here, but I have, of course, the first. Yeah, that was uh, that was my baby. That that was the first one, and uh, uh, that was all of us. Everything we could think of was on there. You know, who who came up with the horny horns name? Uh, George Clinton's wife. I can't think of her name. I, it was his first wife, a second wife, I don't know. She was in the studio, and I, she just happened to say, that sounds awful horny. And so that was it. You know, George, check whatever you say, get something out of it. You know, you, you, you say, 
uh, anything you say, you better be careful because George Clinton will grab hold to it and uh, make something out of it, you know. But anyway, I think his wife said that was awful horny, so it became the horny horns. Well, you came in there, I mean, at a pivotal time, Fred, you know, when it all coalesced to make that, you know, the, the true P-Funk um, and that just classic period. Um, describe a little bit more, you know, what, what was Bootsy like at that time? And what was the whole scene like in the studio creating that? Did you read the book? Yes. Been 15 years, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Bootsy uh, and Catfish, they were the main, the main, uh, uh, the main thing about the funky music, you know, Bootsy and his brother Catfish, and uh, um, uh, Gary Shadow, Bernie Warrell, uh, uh, Boogie, uh, Glenn Going, all those cats, they, uh, they, they just glummed into what Boosie was doing, you know, and uh, created some of the baddest rhythm tracks that I had ever heard in my life. It was a brand new kind of funk. It was a, a, a louder, uh, more brash, and uh, uh, it, it was just something fresh, but funky. You know, we we, we uh, that's what funk really began, man. You know, because uh, Boosie had taken everything he learned from James Brown. I took everything I learned from James Brown and uh, put it uh, on speed dial, and it was it was it blew it up. You know, and that's where funk really began in that studio in Detroit. What was it like for you when you went out on the road with that whole scene? And I mean, the, uh, the, the, the mothership earth tour and all that, I mean, did, did you take all that in or how did you stay grounded and what was it like for you? Uh, well, I didn't exactly stay grounded, but, uh, <laughs> I took it all in though, you know, uh, it was, uh, amazing time. I think that was one of the first big time, um, uh, R&B type shows on the road, you know, Parliament Funkadelic. It was an amazing show, you know, and uh, they put together a, a circus. We had uh, the, the mothership would land on stage and uh, this crowd of people. I, I can understand how we took maybe 40, 50 people around the, the whole world before that, that, uh, that, that mothership, the space thing, you know, and uh, we made some history and made some good music at the same time. Uh, I never heard a band. <coughs> Boosie has tried to put the uh, rubber band back together again. It, it can never happen like that again. It, it never will happen like that again. Yeah, I have... Um... Oh, can't find it right now, but... Um... So, and you're talking about playing in that tour, you know, especially, I mean, your trombone playing was great on that um, live released album that came out on, you know, Make My Funk the P-Funk. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do you have like one experience that you can think of that was sort of the most uh, memorable or unforgettable from, you know, that 70s uh, to early 80s period when you were part of the, the, the P-Funk movement? 
I remember we uh, we done a show with um, uh, Shaka Khan. What's that group? Rufus. Rufus, yeah. We, we done, uh, uh, it was still Rufus at that time featuring Shaka Khan. And um, we were opening the show. We did the, the opening. Boots and Rubber Band. I'm talking about Boots and Rubber Band. Incidentally, this was the baddest band I ever played in. Boots and Rubber Band was tremendous. Uh, uh, it's band of 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 costumes, you know, the first costume band I played in. Uh, anyway, uh, we had done this show. I mean, uh, Rufus was going to be on the show after us. So we had, cats, yeah, yeah, those are the cats. Amazing bunch of cats, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, that was the, we had done the show other nights, maybe five, six nights in a row. And, uh, but we got out there, and for some reason, this was in Orlando, Florida. Uh, it all came together that night. Um, uh, Booster came out with his bass, and uh, 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 he was. I, I, I can't tell you how thrilling to see that show. It really was a thrill to see it. You know, it's no shows like that now. No shows even come close to this now, you know. But, uh, uh, it was an amazing thing how everything just locked together at that one time, you know. And we and from then on, it was automatic. It, it happened every night. We would add stuff and take stuff out, but it all made everything made it better. Uh, it was it was the greatest show I ever played. I, I saw the Monster Rock tour in '78 at the LA Forum, and yeah. that was just unbelievable. I mean, I yeah. hear what you're saying. They you guys were so tight and locked in and he yeah. was so, so charismatic and the front yeah. Yeah. and uh, you guys showed that cartoon and uh, you had the balloons and confetti that dropped down during, you know, player of the year, Hollywood squares. It was incredible. Yeah. 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 And, and I was there, I was there. A lot of guys are not there now, you know, passed on Gary, Bernie, Glenn, uh, Boogie, Peanut. Out of guys, they, but they left their mark. They did leave their mark in the bunk world. Absolutely, yeah. made a big difference in in my life. I know that. 